Good morning and welcome to Trinity Heights virtual service and happy anniversary Trinity Heights. We are four years old today. You know, if anyone had asked me last year, um, how will you be celebrating our fourth anniversary? There is no way I would have ever said like this with everyone scattered across the country and around the world and doing this online and in the midst of what has been an incredibly tumultuous year in so many ways. And if someone asked me what I would be looking forward to in the life of the church, I would never have thought to say, well, I'm looking forward most of all to being able to meet again in person. <laughs> that's it, that's your ambition for Trinity Heights? Yeah, right now, that's a pretty big one. Tim Keller said something at the beginning of the pandemic which struck me. Speaking about churches in New York City, he said every church in New York will have to replant itself after this pandemic is over. And he's right in many ways. During this time, several friends have had to leave the city, have left the city. Some of them were thinking of leaving the city anyway, but they've brought their date forward because of COVID. Others have found themselves unsettled and having temporarily relocated. Understandably, now they're not entirely sure if they will be back. And instead of being able to give these friends a send off and a, a leaving party, uh, they've had to leave without a proper goodbye. The city itself is changing. Who knows, maybe our rents will be lower next year. So yes, I do look forward to being together again, but the reality is it won't be the same church when we do. Keller's right. Just as we're getting going, we'll have to replant and reimagine ourselves. And that can make our enterprise feel vulnerable. I think we've all felt vulnerable in this crisis. And perhaps that's a good thing. It's made us more empathetic to those who may have felt vulnerable in our society all along and in our world in a way that we may not have done had this not come along. For me personally, this interruption to our lives, without knowing when this interruption will end, has made me think a lot about refugees whose lives have been interrupted far more than we have even begun to experience. And in our vulnerability with disease and social unrest and a media which just keeps fueling our society's deepest divisions, one might start to think that the church is going to face some sort of existential threat. And so in these unsettling times, I think it's really good to reflect back on the church's history, to remind ourselves that our congregation's short four-year story that has been interrupted in a way that none of us really expected is really part of a much longer ongoing story. The Apostle Paul does this all the time. He's constantly reminding the church of their connection with the much longer story of Israel. And so I want to do that for us this morning. I want to try to locate us in that flow of our own history. Now, obviously, I can't give you an account of all of church history today, but what I thought we could do is to narrow it down. One way of helping us connect with the church's past might be to get specific, to connect our story as a congregation in New York City to the life of a specific church that has a few years on us. And so I thought, as I'm here in Durham, why not Durham Cathedral? And so I'm going to go all documentary on you now. 
and I'm going to give a bit of history of the church and, and, and the things that this church, the congregations past, the things they have seen and experienced and been part of as a church all the time witnessing to the love of Jesus Christ in this part of the world. The cathedral behind me is unusual in that it was actually built in a relatively short period of time. It was uh, built within 40 years, which for those days is lightning fast, especially when compared with St. John the Divine in New York City, which they've been building for 100 years so far. St. John the Unfinished is a, an appropriate uh, nickname, I think. The cathedral was built by the Normans between 1093 and 1133 shortly after the Norman invasion of England. The only thing older that's up here is the uh, Norman fort, this uh, Norman castle. You can see a bit of it over there on the other side of the quad. Um, that was built in 1072 by William the Conqueror after he had sent up 700 knights up here to the north of England. The barons who ran this part of the country didn't want to recognize him as king. So they killed the 699 knights and sent one back to him. Well, unfortunately, that knight did get back. William got the message. And so he sent up an army and they slaughtered and burned everything in their wake, killing around 150,000 people. And it's estimated 100,000 more died of starvation. It became what's known as the harrying of the North. In 1349, the Black Death swept through Durham. The combination of plague and fear of a Scottish invasion, Scotland's just north of here, about an hour, uh, caused such unrest within Durham itself that there were riots in the streets. And the fears were not unfounded. The Scots actually took advantage of their English neighbors' discomfort and raided Durham that same year. Ugh, so 1349. But they paid a heavy price for their opportunism. Losing 5,000 of their own men, they turned to go home. And in their baggage, they took the plague back to Scotland with them. It's no wonder an anonymous hand carved this harrowing inscription for the year 1349. Wretched, terrible, destructive year. The remnants of the people alone remain. Perhaps that's what we'll write in our diaries. A couple of centuries later, in 1534, more social upheaval. The Reformation swept through the life of the cathedral. It's turned upside down again. Let's fast forward, skip half a millennium, and war memorials start to appear. There's one over there that I thought was uh, for World War, one of the World Wars, but it turns out it wasn't. It was for the lives of the young men lost in the British Boer Wars in South Africa in the late 1800s. The World War I memorial is around the other side of the church. And then hot on the heels of World War I comes the Spanish flu. During the 1980s and 90s, uh, the Bishop of Durham for many years was a man who didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said it was a trick with rags and old bones. He's famous for saying that. Bishop David Jenkins. 
Just a day or so after he'd been ordained the Bishop of Durham, York Minster, where the ordination had taken place, was struck by lightning and spectacularly burst into flames uh, at right over the spot where the ordination had taken place. And of course, the secular tabloid press sensationalized this as a sign of divine wrath over his appointment as bishop. David Jenkins was also satirized in Spitting Image. Spitting Image is this uh, British uh, political satire show where everyone is represented in the form of a rather grotesque puppet. It's a show I used to watch as a kid and it hasn't been on for a couple of decades, but apparently I just heard they're bringing it back this year, which I'm very excited about. Anyway, David Jenkins was depicted in one episode persuading God to become an atheist. It's ironic then that the man who succeeded him to serve in this cathedral as the bishop not only believed in the resurrection, but ended up writing the longest defense of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in the entire history of the church. Our old friend N.T. Wright, you've heard me quote on multiple occasions and has had a huge influence in the theology of our own congregation. And during those years, the church has stood with those through the depression of a, a depressed town when the mining industry was dying around here, and people were out of work. And our story is connected with this cathedral in, in perhaps, and the life going on around it, in perhaps an even more uh, specific way. In the, the Georgian building over there, um, in, in the shadow of the cathedral is a theology department where I'm receiving my ongoing training for our work together at Trinity Heights in New York City. One final interesting feature of this church is this door knocker. This ugly looking head was there for people who were seeking sanctuary. If you were accused of something, you would come here, rap on the door using this, and you would be granted 36 days of sanctuary during which time you had to decide if you would face trial or flee the country by sea. And in a way, this is symbolic of the church's role. This has been a place of sanctuary for people throughout the last millennium. Throughout all those trials and tribulations, the church has provided comfort for those going through heartbreak, through loss. The church has provided stability for those whose lives has been turned upside down. Hope for the hopeless when things seem their darkest Sometimes just by doing what at times seemed mundane. Feeding people spiritually by telling the story of Jesus. Gathering people together. And regardless of the sometimes dodgy leadership, people have found faith for the first time. And others have had their faith renewed again. Now obviously I have jumped vast tracks of time here. And there's so much more that can be said. But it's important to remind ourselves of our connection with the long ongoing story of the church. The church has always been through trials and tribulations. The church has always seen tremendous social upheavals. The church has always seen the rise and fall of empires. But the church remains and will always remain because the church is God's plan to shape humanity around Jesus. And so in these unsettling times, we're called to look for opportunities to bring comfort to the brokenhearted, to provide stability for those whose lives have been turned upside down, to give the gift of hope to the hopeless, 
when things seem their darkest. It's interesting, you read the epistles, any of them actually, and it seems that these trials and tribulations, persecution sometimes, empires rising and falling, the apostles just seem to take all of these things for granted as just sort of the course of life, the, the natural ebb and flow of society. They never seem particularly worried or surprised by it. I think we're surprised by it because we are perhaps the most shielded and comfortable people the world has ever known. But not the early church and not most of the church down through the ages. There was really only ever one thing that the apostles really got truly concerned about. And it wasn't persecution, it wasn't societal upheaval, it wasn't the death of their public institutions, the invasion of a foreign army, the threat of a civil war. The things they were concerned about and considered a real existential threat was division in the church. When there were divisions, those were the moments that the apostles got nervous. So they keep saying to each other, be united with one another, love one another, agree with one another in the Lord. Don't give up meeting together, even if it is online. Don't stop laying down your life for each other. Be at peace with each other. Keep forgiving each other. Keep considering each other's needs ahead of your own. Keep being kind to one another. Keep being generous to one another. Because only then can we be that shelter, that sanctuary, and yes, dare I say it, a source of hope in Jesus for a humanity searching for God. Amen.